It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Victor, welcome. It's great to have you on today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Victor Davis Hansen has a view on everything. He's a professor at Stanford. He's an author. He's a farmer. <laughs> you, um, those three usually don't go together, Victor. Yeah, they don't go together with me too well sometimes either. Mm. Because they're kind of antithetical to one another. Well, you, you, and, uh, you're a deep thinker, and you've got a lot to say. So here, here's what I did. I picked some general topics, mostly around politics, and I'm going to tee them up, and we'll just see where the conversation goes. So by yeah. the, to- by the oh. time listeners hear this, by the way, it'll be at least 24 hours uh, removed from the Democratic debate. So let's start there and tell us how you score Wednesday night. Well, Elizabeth Warren scored a lot of points um, against Bloomberg. That's obvious. She was she embarrassed him. She quoted all of the things he said. He had no adequate answers. But I don't think that it, she helped herself rise up in the polls or in the relative rankings of the, she was. She reminded me of what Chris, Christie did to Marco Rubio in 2016. She was a useful tool for the other candidates, but she she didn't come off as modest or empathetic she came off as shrill and sort of mean-spirited and and it, it didn't it was useful to to neuter him in that debate but it didn't help her mayor pete i thought was elegant he was articulate but there's something glib about him and he's got a little cruel streak with amy kobachar and playing this gotcha you don't know the name of the of a president of obador of mexico and that that was sort of minor and petty and more importantly about him he says things that are just not true he exaggerates his black support he made a big thing out of donald trump didn't release his medical records and bernie sanders hadn't either and they should follow the model of barack obama barack obama never did remember in 2008 john mccain gave access to pages and pages of his sometimes embarrassing medical records and barack obama just had basically what trump did a, a little synopsis from his personal physician so for all of the glibness, he doesn't tell the truth, and he says a lot of things that when you hear it, it sounds well, and you digest it a minute later, and you think, what was that about? Uh, Joe Biden had to show people that he was alert, that he was on top of the issues, that he was crisp. He seemed to do okay for 30 minutes, and then after that, it was good old Joe again, and basically his line is, I was here 30 years, Barack Obama really likes me, but he doesn't tell you that, and... I can't remember the I can't remember the president of Mexico either, but I can remember the president and the president and the president before him, but I can't give you the names right now. So he, I don't think he helped himself. And I didn't understand why the onus was directed at Bloomberg because he's still, for all of his 400 million, he's still second or third, probably third in the polls. They should have been going after Bernie Sanders because. He poses an existential threat to the Democratic Party. I mean, we talk about the Republican fractures and never Trumpers, but Donald Trump ran on a, essentially a Reagan-esque agenda, conservative judges, tax reform, more energy. Even the thing with China, get tough with China, was nationalistic. But Sanders is not running on anything remotely 
similar to what Bill Clinton embodied or even Barack Obama. This is a radically socialist agenda, and that will split the Democratic Party in a way the Republican Party Mm -hmm. is never fractured. Let me come back to that point in a moment. But uh, Michael Bloomberg, I, I think the level of curiosity was obvious. It was very high. Yeah. How, how did he do? Well, he had one or two good lines, and that's what he would have done much better. Let me put it this way. If he had just been Michael Bloomberg, the independent, maverick, multi-billionaire, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, independent, but he didn't. And so he seemed like he was contrite and apologetic for his stop and frisk. He was contrite and apologetic over his non-disclosures, a little bit about his money. And then when he tried to be funny, it had the off-putting effect of kind of confirming that he's narcissistic in a way and, and lives in a Manhattan cocoon. And by that, I mean, why would you say that, well, I have basically extensive holdings and business interests that I can't use TurboTax and haha, but millions that were listening rely on TurboTax. They can't afford the array of lawyers that he uses. So he he said things that that he didn't realize how they uh, affect other people who listen to him. And he, and he would have been much better to say, you know what, you may not like what you want to hear, but I reduce crime in New York. And you may not want to hear, I don't believe in redlining, but you can't give subprime mortgages to people who don't qualify for loans because they can take down the whole system. So if he had been true to his earlier statements and tried to, he could have apologized for the way in which he said them. It was pretty deplo- terrible to say you should put African-American youth up against the wall. He could apologize for that without disowning all of this uh, prior record that in some mm-hmm. ways you had positive effects. It's interesting that you analyze it that way. I, I thought it was a food fight, Victor. And I, I had the sense that the moderators had no, very, right. very little control. Yeah. Well, they, I think they thought that they weren't getting anywhere in the prior debates and they were boring and they had poor ratings and that the hour was getting late and the race was coming down, as Pete said, between this billionaire and the socialist. And they had to do something to, you know, but I don't know who they thought they were going to, if, if they really believed that and they were coherent then everybody would have done one thing. They would have gone after Bernie Sanders, who's on a, on a pathway to get yeah. the nomination, unless they can derail him. But why would they waste their time going after Amy, or why would they go after Biden when he's now fading? And uh, I can see that they were a little worried about Bloomberg, but he's still not the existential threat that Bernie is. Yeah, my, my observation, just listening to you then, is if Bloomberg wanted to have a thoughtful comment about stop and frisk or redlining with loans and into poor neighborhoods in America, he, he really didn't have the opportunity because somebody would be carping at his heels, Victor. No, he, he didn't. And he wasn't even prepared. He would have thought with all of the assets at his disposal, he would have had a, a team of experts playing each one of those roles and said, they're going to come at you on this, this, this. We need a one-liner, a 15-second repartee. He didn't. And it was almost, I don't know whether he's not able to do that or he was naive that he was his money and his ads could do what his debating skills could not. But he had a very poor night and it kind of confirmed that he's he's a virtual candidate. He's, he can't go out in the stump. He doesn't know the heartland. He keep he's a fin, his attraction bill was 
supposedly he was going to save the Democrats and Bernie because he was going to win the election by peeling off suburban and independent women. And as a big city mayor, he knew how to get along with a lot of minorities. He was sensitive to their concerns, and Trump wasn't. And he's nullified all of those advantages. He's offended women and professional women in particular. He's offended minorities, Latinos and blacks. He's offended working class uh, lunch bucket Democratic voters, the way he talked about laid workers and farmers. So I just I think at some point people are going to say, you know what? He's not going to do what we thought he's going to do. And now all of this money he's spending is sucking the air out of the room. He's hiring consultants. He's hiring staffers that he's sort of and paying them well. Well, yeah, yeah pay, pay, paying them well. And it's kind of a Machiavellian strategy. It's almost if I don't need them and they're superfluous, at least I'll keep them off the market and other people can't utilize them. It's interesting. Tuesday next week, by the way, in South Carolina, there's the next debate. Michael Bloomberg will be there. Come back to Bernie Sanders. He appears to be the front runner. Some would argue a clear front runner. Do you agree with that, essentially? I agree that he's a front runner, but it's a little bit like 2016, the way that Trump was a front runner. People kept saying, well, he has never got the majority of all of the primary aggregate vote. And if Kasich would just calm down and Cruz and Rubio and pull their their resources, they would have a, a greater vote in combination than he did. That's all true, but that never happens in politics because people, you know, Cruz doesn't like uh, Rubio vice versa any more than they liked or disliked Trump. So in theory, you can see how to stop Trump. Sanders, you could just say, well, why can't Biden or Amy Klobuchar or Pete Buttigieg or, you know, some of these people drop out and then combine that vote? But that's not going to happen. So you can get the impression that this train is going over the cliff and they can't stop it unless, you know, at times Bernie doesn't look healthy 78 years old. I'm 66. The idea that in 12 years from now I could go out and barnstorm the country after having a heart attack is absurd. And <laughs> it's not easy. I, I don't. <laughs> you know. uh, yeah, and I, it's not easy. And he loses his temper. And he's also they didn't they don't know how to attack him. And by that I mean they just talk about his current proposals as being unworkable, as if he's just a wonk that got off the rails. They should be saying, you went to Cuba and you praised the Cuban system and you said it was a model. You spent your honeymoon in the Soviet Union and yet you have three houses. They mentioned that, but they said that's a hypocrisy, but it confirms the history of uh, authoritarian, totalitarianisms, communist, socialists. They always have one rule for themselves and one rule for others. That would have been very devastating but they i don't know they're not able to 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 call him on his past in the way you think he'd be very vulnerable i don't know why that is Mm -hmm. orwell right um all animals are not created equal (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) i think that was the closing line here's here's um something that i remember indelibly from four years ago and many people will talk about this between now and milwaukee next july and that is at the democratic convention in philadelphia from 2016 there was a ton of Bernie Sanders' support on the floor of that convention. And they were ticked off that their guy was not the nominee. So here is the question now. Whether it was 2016 or 2020, what is the attraction within the party to a Democratic Socialist? Well, in the primaries, I think that the activists and the people who call people up, and even some of the people who give money, uh, feel that 
Bernie Sanders is going to uh, capture, galvanize this rubric, the life of Julia, the pajama boy profile. That is millions and millions of, the, of, of Americans, the people who owe $1.6 trillion in student debt. They marry later. They, don't, they have children later, if at all. They don't buy a house. All of those problems of this new generation, and they're not they're not going to make as much money and they're not going to have the lifestyles. And Bernie's right about that for a variety of reasons. But that's not, that's not the majority of the Democratic Party. It's about 40%. But in the primary, they're the people with the energy, the AOC crowd, and they're the people that get the media attention. And they can, they can do what they did in 72 with George McGovern. They can do what they did with 84 with Walter Mondale. They can propel somebody who's out of step with the mainstream voter in the way that Barry Goldwater did in 64, the Republicans. I, I remember being 11 years old and watching the San Francisco convention with my parents who were Democrats. And they said, oh, my gosh, this guy is going to get Lyndon Johnson elected by a landslide. But when you looked at the Cow Palace and you saw those Goldwater people, they were fanatic. I've never seen people. And Barry gave a great speech. And you thought, wow, it's so much energy. But they were all clueless how they sounded. Hmm. And uh I think that's what's happening. To it's it's interesting. Today. I was watching the town halls the other night on CNN, and Bernie Sanders was on. And he, I tell you, I, I listen when he talks. He's charismatic. He draws you in. They, then they went to a commercial break and brought out Pete Buttigieg, and his tone on every answer is pretty much the same. And I said, boom, you got it. You can, you can understand why Sanders draws so many people. He is a force unto himself. Now, I don't know how Bloomberg fits into that in a Democratic primary system. I don't know what's a bigger sin. Is it being a billionaire? Is it having a stop and frisk policy? Is it something else? I don't know. But I think Bloomberg did some good things when he ran New York. But I don't think, Victor, 95% of America is aware of what he did. Now, he banned smoking in restaurants and bars, which turned out to be a good call. California was on the leading edge of this, and then the rest of the nation followed. But then there, there were a lot of other things. The ban on salt, the large, oversized, sugary drinks, the carbs, the cars, the traffic patterns that were changed dramatically, coupled with the congestion fees and the bike lanes they built, uh, which followed by by Uber and Lyft, which helped make it very difficult for a cab driver to make a living now. So he changed a lot. And I don't know when that record is peeled back how middle America would react to it. Have you thought about that? Yeah, I have. I think the good that you mentioned, and it's undeniably good, is not known to most people because it was mostly a local or regional issues about you know, keeping crime or homelessness in the streets of Manhattan. But the, the larger issues about supersized drinks and nanny state, that got into the national media a lot more. And how it came off or how it played to people where I am speaking right now in Fresno County in the heartland of California was this guy has so much money that he doesn't need anything else in the world. But now he's going to bother us as if he has that entitlement because he's wealthy and he can. And so he will. And he's going to tell us how to live our lives and micromanage it. And we don't equate his money with wisdom. And we don't think he knows any more than we do how to live. And it's our business, not his. And that's where he is right now. It's sort of a 
And that, that, that's true of all of the Democratic candidates to varying degree. They come across as sanctimonious and self-righteous. Pete Buttigieg does especially, but so does Elizabeth Warren. And, and no one just says, wait a minute, if you're going to ban fracking, what are you going to tell Hernando Lopez out here in Kalinga when he has to go uh, drive 60 miles to get on an almond harvester and he has to pay $5 for gas? Or what do you tell the people out here in Merced that when it gets 108, they go to Walmart because they can't afford to turn on their air conditioning because California's 24 cents per kilowatt hour? So all of this stuff, if you boil it down, Bill, it's really an elite agenda. And they don't understand that, that the green agenda, the open borders agenda, the reparations agenda, the Medicare, it's all it's all given to people by pretty affluent people. And they're worried about what affluent people in the media and the party think, but they don't, or maybe it's cultural disdain, whatever, they don't connect with average people. And this is what's ironic about this race is that the other billionaire, Donald Trump, authentically likes to be around working people. In Man- you know that from Manhattan. And he's authentic. He came into Bakersfield yesterday, and he does what he does every time he goes to a rural area. He, he comes in with that Queens accent. He's got the suit, the tie, the, the yellow hair, the orange thing. He doesn't change. The idea that Donald Trump would say, I'm so tired the way that Hillary Clinton did or that he would imitate an accent the way Joe Biden does, where he'd put on a Caterpillar hat and Levi's. He doesn't do that. And Bernie, you ask, um, this is a long, windy answer about Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is authentic. He doesn't change that Brooklyn accent. He doesn't change his arms. You put him anywhere in the world, and he's the old socialist from Vermont via, uh, from Brooklyn via Vermont. So one of the reasons that he's doing well is the same reason that Trump did. Well, he's authentically somebody and mm-hmm. Biden and Warren change their identities, their, their race. Uh, Mayor Pete has been all over the map, depending on the polls, but Bernie's right there as a hardcore socialist. And he's unapologetic and he never retracts or apologizes for his prior positions, just the way Trump is. Yeah. Hold that thought. More hammer time coming up. Hey folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus. They've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So, you know, you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. 
That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. One more thing on Bloomberg. Oh, two more points on him. Um, he is, he's big in the climate change. He's put a lot of attention and money toward it. I, I've always characterized it as a, <laughs> as a war on cars. You know, the congestion fee is designed to dissuade you from driving a car. And then when you bring in Uber and Lyft, which I think are amazing American companies, that, that's designed to decrease the number of vehicles on the road. That, that, that's what a lot of that's about. I, I also feel, having lived in Manhattan for 19 years, that the bike lanes are built in the following. Here's the thinking. If you can prove to the rest of the world that Manhattan, of all cities in the world, can have bike lanes where it's safe, then any town can do it. From my perspective, having a tourist fly in from some country somewhere around the world and put their credit card into one of these bikes and, and go off on their, on their merry way in Manhattan, it's a dangerous town. you got to be looking around because if you're not, you'll get clipped and it can be dangerous. But this whole idea about a war on cars, when you talk to cab drivers in New York City, they will give you an earful about that very idea. No, you're absolutely right. But then you have to ask ourselves, what's the motivation or the catalyst that uh, an intelligent person like Michael Bloomberg would advance all of these nostrums that are completely out of touch with cab drivers or pedestrians that see these reckless guys on bikes or the dangers that a tourist would have trying to ride a bike in Manhattan? And the answer is he's out of touch, just as he doesn't understand farming. If he doesn't understand that ancient farming, much less modern farming, was very sophisticated. And that's why they, and it was very tough. That's why we have famines rather than bounty for most of history. It's very hard to grow food. But if you're Mike Bloomberg, the food is delivered to one of your houses. And, you know, if you ask him where raisins come from, he would know whether it was a tree or a grape. And so he's out of it. He's in a cocoon. And so then he, he again, he equates his influence and power and money within the landscape or the environment or the habitat of Manhattan with global or cosmic wisdom. And it's not. And that's what gets him in trouble, that he thinks, you know what, I've been so successful in my business that I can translate or transmogrify that expertise to all these other problems. And I don't really have to go out and experience or talk to people because I just smarter than they are. I have more gray matter than they do. <laughs> and that comes across that comes across in the in the debate. And he's, and he's in a way, if classical, a classical Greek author would say he's ignorant because he doesn't have practical experience and he doesn't talk to people that have skill sets. And he, that's his word, not mine. You know, that I he, that he lacks Yeah, watching him at one point the other night. I just wondered if he thought, is this worth it? I mean, the food fight that I described earlier, you just wonder what was going through his head. Uh, one more I point. That's a good ob- no, that's a good, if I could just interject, yes. that's a great observation. Cause you remember when he dabbled by coming in, a few months ago, and then he decided not to run. He gave an interview, and he said, you know, I couldn't run because all I'd have to do was apologize to those crazy people. And he was, he was basically rejecting his own candidacy now because he knew. Yeah. And now, now I think he looks back and said, this is why I didn't get in when I said I was because right. I would have to do what I'm doing now. Yeah, I just, you know, when they came on stage and everybody's waving and, you know, they're, they're all doing the political thing. They're, they're in character. And he was, he was on the end of the stage, and he was... Um, he looked um, not unresponsive, but he, he's not a part of that. And these politicians have been banging on doors in Iowa, New Hampshire for years. Now, one last point. He was mayor for two terms in New York. And this is another thing that I don't think the rest of the country understands. 
there, there was a law that prevented you from running for a third term, term limit. So the city council, during his second term, I believe if my memory is correct, they changed the law, which allowed him to run for a third term. Yes. And then they changed the law back when he was serving his third term. And none of that has been exposed. And I know a lot of critics would say that's the actions of an imperialistic leader, Victor. Well, I mean, Giuliani couldn't do it and de Blasio won't be able to do it. And that's because they lack the financial resources that he does in the same way that they nuance or massage the number of donors and the qualifications to get in the debate. And there's a pattern there. And I think that Bloomberg feels that he's got so much, he has so many financial resources coming to the end of his life that he might as well spend it. And the way he's very clever about how he spends it, he seeds congressional candidates when they run for office, he seeds PACs, he seeds nonprofits with the expectation that someday there'll be a quid pro quo and the, and the tally will come due. So we got this very Orwellian or weird situation where you'll have black civil rights leaders who will get on Fox and other stations and they will, they will endorse Bloomberg and they will do so with full knowledge of what he said about black youth and Latino youth and black maids. And then you start to, you know, go on the internet for five minutes and you see that he's given you know, very generously to various causes that they're either a part of or they approve of. So he kind of seeds the field. For somebody who makes son of farmers, he seems to know how to plant a crop pretty well because <laughs> he thinks he's going to harvest it at his future date. Well, and he does. Uh, let, let's see how far he goes now. I'm, I'm suggesting now he spends a billion dollars and that might be uh, at the low end. Last question, Vic. Yeah. Uh, you wrote a book about Donald Trump called The Case for Trump. As it stands today, mid-late February 2020, what case can you make for his re-election? Well, the first, the most obvious is he said he was going to do certain things. And at the time, people either said you need a magic wand or he crashed the stock market. And he did do them. By that, I mean he did get a tax reform. He did get record low unemployment for minorities. He did get more industry and and manufacturing jobs. He did move the embassy to Jerusalem. He cut off the Palestinians. He got out of the Iran deal. He got out of the Paris Accord. He job on NATO. So whatever you think about what his policies, he's pretty much tried to do. And even the border, now he's reaping dividends. That's his biggest selling point. And then the second is, well, did they do any good? And the answer is, I think most people, and it doesn't matter what I think, but most people, when you look at polls, about 67, 66% of the people think the economy is really good. And they give credit not to Obama, the majority, but to Trump. And then when you look at the foreign policy, in retrospect, what we know of the Iran deal and where that money went, it, it was a good thing to get out of it. Was it a good thing to kill Soleimani? Probably so. Is Israel a friend again? Yes. Are the moderate Arab uh, pretty much aligned with Israel and the U.S.? Yes. Is the world outraged at the Palestinians' uh, perpetual grievances? No. Was he right to get tough with China when everybody said he was either crazy or it was destructive? Yeah, when you look at what we know now about the re-education camps, the Hong Kong protests, the coronavirus mess, the internal surveillance, Trump's cunning was pretty prescient about China. And most people are gravitating to the Trump position rather than distancing themselves away from it, at least on China. So you put all that together and 
does that nullify or is that nullified or cancel out by his tweets or sometimes crassness? And I think now it's baked into who Trump is. And when you see that when people are so angry at him, the Mueller investigation, uh, the whole celebrity hate Trump movement, the impeachment, when you put all that together, all they do is in a Nietzschean fashion, whatever doesn't kill him, destroy him, makes him stronger. So he's, he's handled his liabilities, and I think he's neutralized it. And you can see in the real clear politics polls that he's each week he goes up a point. He's up to 46% now. And you take a couple of those polls out, like Reuters or, you know, The Economist, and he, he would be right about 50%. Interesting. And he won with forty. He won with forty six percent. So I think a lot of things I said in the book about Mueller and about impeachment and about his agenda have aged pretty well <laughs> in the year and a half since I wrote it. I look at numbers a lot, Victor, and I'll, I'll leave you with one number. I was in New Hampshire about a week ago for the primary. The state unemployment rate in New Hampshire is what? Take a guess. Two two percent. Two point seven percent. That is my God. That, that is minuscule. And yeah, that when, means everybody's working. If, if you're looking at numbers like that during a re-election where the economy is what you vote on, uh, by and large, that's, that's tough to take down. So we'll leave it at that. And thank you so much yeah. for your time, Victor. Really great to talk to you. Next Tuesday is the next Democrat debate in South Carolina. We'll be watching then. Thank you, Victor. Have a terrific weekend to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Bill. Victor Davis Hanson in California. I'm Bill Hemmer in New York. And this is Hammer Time. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.